Hello and welcome to the Women's Agenda podcast, your weekly look at some of the key stories that we're covering on Women's Agenda and some of the key things that have people talking this week. I am here uh, together for the very first time with Shivani Gopal. How are you, Shivani? I am brilliant, thank you. We've just celebrated International Women's Day here at the Ivy and I could not be better. So Shivani's just wrapped up her, this is your signature event for the year. It was pretty special. Yeah, special is uh, is one way to put it. We had women crammed into the room, uh, you know, Taria Pitt, Amna Kara Hassan and Jessica Rowe just pouring their hearts out with their incredible stories. It was just such a privilege and a blessing to have them all and have all these incredible women come along. So signature event and one of the great highlights of my year. Yes, yeah, highlight from my year as well. I've taken down a few notes that I will be taking into my every day for the next year because there were some good tips there, so... We'll talk about some of those. We will. Also with us is our contributing editor on Women's Agenda, Georgie Dent. How are you, Georgie? I am well, thank you. It's great to be here with you both. There goes the door. We're sitting in the green room at the uh, Ivy where Shivani just ran her event um, and there's some leftover fruit, which is quite nice. Mm. And, and there's we, background noise. And there's background, there's doors opening. And we love, the, my, our favourite part of this room is the fact that there is a door with the word door on it. Yes, because we need to be told that there is a door. Yeah. It could be thoroughfare if it was open. I know. I know. If it didn't have it yeah. on it, it would not be obvious what that thing with a handle on it yes. is. Yeah. Anyway, so this week we are talking about uh, we are talking about International Women's Day. That is upon us. There's a lot going on uh, in Australia regarding International Women's Day. A lot going on around the world. Although, unfortunately, there have been some major events uh, that have been cancelled due mm. to coronavirus mm. internationally. Um but we want to talk about what the day means, what it means to us, what we're thinking about regarding International Women's Day this year. But we're especially going to talk about also uh, girls' education around the world. There are 130 million girls internationally who are still not in school. Um, this is obviously a key thing that we need to keep top of mind again and again when we do whatever we're doing for around International Women's Day. And we've got an amazing guest that uh, Georgie and I just interviewed earlier that you'll be hearing from as well. And it is like, uh, just you, you just want to stick around for that conversation. But Georgie, I'm going to start with you mm. because International, Women Day, International Women's Day, um, you have mixed feelings about it and you've written quite a few pieces Regarding your thoughts on it that have been yes. somewhat controversial? Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I was looking at it this week because I was like, I can't write the same column for the fifth year in a row. But five years ago, I did write on International Women's Day. And I remember I was dashing between about four different events that day. And I felt underwhelmed. And not because of the events themselves, but because by this sort of um, feeling that there was this huge disconnect between the sort of fanfare and enthusiasm around women and gender and then the reality. And, I mean, Mm -hmm. I think on that particular day I was looking at the political um, narrative and the political stories of the day versus these events that I was going to and I just thought, you know, I would much rather the enthusiasm and fanfare um, be coming from position, you know, people in leadership positions and doing actually affecting change. And I have written for the last few years each year that I do find that disconnect is getting bigger and I find it really frustrating. Mm. And I think that, you know, this year I, I haven't written the annual column, which is why I hate International Women's Day. <laughs> <laughs> and You're going to have to change it up, Georgie. I know, but I did write actually this year, I wrote instead, should we change the name to Do More Work for Free Day? Mm. 
because um, I do find, and it's a conversation that I've had even at the school gate with, you know, parents um, who've got kids at my school, at my kids' school, who sort of say things like on top of their normal workload this week they've got to speak on three or four different panels or they've got to organise this event. A lot of internal um, International Women's Day events, Mm. I think that's quite different to... The sort of to, to the, to the event ones, yeah. that you would do here, Shivani, where you people are, um, you've got some terrific speakers. People come along, um, they pay. You mm. obviously pay the speakers, and you know that's a different proposition to internal events where yes. the expectation is that women will find additional time on top of all of the duties they do, on top of the unpaid work they already do and outside do it out of the, the home, goodness of their heart, and right? they will. And I think I would much prefer to see organisations put resources internal or external um into actually shifting the dial on some of these issues Mm. because it's really easy i think for people to believe that the issue of gender inequality is just too big to tackle but i just think that's a complete cop-out because we know there are really material um things that companies employers governments can do that actually change the lives of of women and girls Mm. And, you know, I think the interview um, and that we have done with um, Dr Kakenya that is coming up really drills home the fact that the issue of gender inequality is so large. Mm. You know, the ramifications of it are diabolical. Mm. And it's a situation that we can change. Mm. That It's possible. Yeah, it's a situation that we have to change and we see... The, the benefits of it that, that run on to the community as well, like we'll hear that's outlined in that interview. Um, and this year, I know for me, um, I'm particularly thinking about climate change and when we talk about girls not being in school and we talk about some of uh, the added inequalities and challenges that girls are facing um, in Australia but also internationally – and we know that uh, the, some of the effects of climate change, if we're having, um, which we are already seeing, you know, in, in, in a heightened intensity and frequency of, um, of disaster-related events, those impacts are going to uh, affect girls and women uh, significantly. And I don't think that we're bringing that enough into the conversation. We're certainly not seeing it. You mean, talk about the disconnect at the political level as well. But we should be thinking about that. And I think if you care about gender inequality and you want to get to the point of gender equality then you also need to have a think about climate change as well and particularly this year we're in a critical year of a critical uh, decade Um, it's not too late we don't have to lose hope on this issue and I firmly believe that we need to come together to do something for that because we are only going to go backwards Mm. on gender inequality if we don't yeah and And I mm. No, look, and, and I think that's exactly why we need days like International Women's Day. So, Georgie, I hear you. Mm. And, and look, I agree. I wish that we lived in a world where we didn't need International Women's Day. I find it really annoying as well when, you know, men go, well, where is International Men's Day? You don't need an International Men's Day because it's there for you every single day. Mm. You've got the privilege. Mm. It's invisible. Check it because you can't see what's already there. That's why we need International Women's Day because, as you have very rightly said in previous podcasts, what gets measured gets done, right? Mm. International Women's Day creates a flag post event every single year which forces world leaders, political leaders, uh, business leaders and uh, 
uh, and workplace leaders to go, well, what are we really doing for women and what have we done since last year? Mm. And unless we had something that came again, time and time again, on the dot, 8th of March every single year, there wouldn't be that. So yes, I wish we didn't have to have it, but without it, so much progress would be left undone. And I hear what you're saying around the momentous size of the problem. You know, if we had gender equality, we would have $27 trillion added to the global economy. If we had gender uh, gender equality, then we wouldn't have these huge stats like, you know, the World Economic Forum is actually saying where it will take 202 years to get to equality. So we start to think, well, what can I possibly do to add to that? And what International Women's Day does, it, it brings people together to really concentrate on that one topic. Because frankly, and this is so sad, right? Mm. And, and, I, and I loathe this so much. But frankly, if we didn't have it, when are we going to get together in groups and have four events in one day mm. and four events in the next day? And, and you know, the, the whole season goes for at least two weeks where we are just focusing on women. In mm. fact, it would just dissipate into nothingness. And that's what I'm really afraid of. And, you know, and let's talk about, you know, creating opportunity and agency for women. So I hear you. I too get asked all the time, hey, Shivani, you're so passionate about change. You're so passionate about gender equality. You know, we love that. You know, we'd love for you to come in and speak for us. And I go, great. I'm going to get you in touch with my media agent and let's go organise this. And without fail, I would say a good 70% of the time, he'll come back to me and go, hey, Shiv, um, they want you to do it for free. So I'm just letting you know it's your it's your choice now if it's for a charity i will do it for free if it's for uh, you know a really good social enterprise or a cause i will do it for free and also if it's local and i can get myself there but it's really important that women start valuing their time and time is money and and what international women's day also does is it creates a platform for these women to be paid to speak so it opens up the marketplace mm-hmm. because throughout the year what i really gets on my go is you're trying to do an event and you start looking for the female speakers and you go goodness where are they all there are some incredible female speakers and role models. Why don't we have a bigger platform for them? Mm. And so, if anything, International Women's Day does create that platform where you're where you're having to put more talent in because there's this issue of supply and demand. Mm. There is so much demand for these speakers. So, yes, we, we pay a very pretty penny. We pay exactly the price of ask for our speakers. Um, and, and I'm so proud of that. And we have to charge for the, for the events. And I, I think that when we talk about International Women's Day and, you know, being, you know, mm. being free, I do want to touch on that because we copped a lot of like on social media uh, obviously the name of our organization is the remarkable woman and when we advertised the event the the ticketed event was you know 160 bucks per ticket and we got a lot of slack you know oh so it's only for it's only for rich women or you know remarkable woman must have to pay hey it's costing us tens of thousands of dollars to put on these speakers it's costing us tens of thousands of dollars to put on the breakfast to put on the av it all costs money we are not actually doing these events to make money we're doing it to create the space for women to come together and really have a conversation around equality, around progress, where inspiration meets action. So I think so much good happens for that. And uh, and I think that we need to continually move forward to try to get to where you want to be, where every day is International Women's Day, because we also have the same privilege that men do. Until then, mm. got to have the day. I think it's interesting your point about that kind of yardstick. It, it comes up every year, yes. so it's this reminder. And you see that in terms of people getting together and thinking about these conversations about, say, girls' education internationally, but also it's where our own politicians have to come and think about their their policies, which they might like kind of scratch their heads and mm. think, oh, should I haven't actually done much this year? And I feel that, I mean, last year we had the famous quote from Scott Morrison who oh, God. Um, mints, I don't know if he made a complete mints of what he was supposed to say, but it did kind of look like, I remember his speech did come through. That was the notes that was on his website where he made the comments that, you know, we don't want to uh, 
push people down to well, push we want, people up. And I'm yeah, you yes, have exactly. We George, want, you know the, well, same, the right quote. No, I mean, yeah. He, well, he basically said we want women to succeed yeah. but not at the expense of others. Yeah. And I actually – do you know it was at, uh, not at the expense of pushing people down? Yeah, it was, yeah, it was something he, around if women succeed, then men, uh, you know, we don't want to make we want to make sure that men are not uh, not not succeeding because women are succeeding essentially. Yeah, yeah. but and I'll, I'll I think put the full quote in the notes because it's one of the, I remember we're clearly year, butchering this. I looked over it over and over <laughs> again because I thought, did he really say that? But and I but mm. what I think is I actually applaud him for saying that because I think that's genuinely what he believes that he does want women to succeed but not at the expense of other people. And to me, that's very telling because at least he's being honest. I get so tired of hearing leaders, whether they're political leaders or business leaders, getting up and talking the talk about gender or you know domestic violence. And this is another thing that Scott Morrison has said very recently, we've got to do all that we can. Doing all that we can means actually putting money where your mouth is. And I think it's the same on all of these issues, that if... We had a Prime Minister who genuinely thought we need to invest in women succeeding and not thinking about the cost of that to men, we would be a lot further ahead. We would be further down the path of um, equality and we're not there. And I frankly would prefer him to be honest Mm. and be transparent about his views, even if he didn't expect there to be a backlash because he... I think he genuinely thought that was a reasonable comment. Mm. And you know what? Until we get that change, there is forever going to be just that one seat at the table that every woman is fighting for as opposed to just being a bigger table where there are many seats and all women are able to take it because they are already capable and talented enough to do so. And unless Scott Morrison is going to do something about creating far more jobs and so therefore women are succeeding but not at the expense of men, I mean, really, it, it really is that there are a certain amount of jobs and we need more women to be stepping up and taking it so that we can get equality. And there's that question of equality versus equity, right? Mm. If you're trying to put the equity back into things, then yes, we do need more women succeeding, uh, more numbers of women succeeding versus the numbers of men succeeding because there are already such a big quantum of men succeeding. So I think that equity component is so important. And when we talk about equity, at first, you know, years and years ago when I heard about it, it sounded like academic jargon to me and I didn't really make sense of it and then I saw this incredible image so I'm going to try to do my Mm. best to describe what this image looks like Georgie you're nodding Mm. because you've seen it Mm. but it was basically you know two people looking over a fence trying to look at a, a, a you know a football game and one person you know was tall enough as it was so they were able to easily clear the fence and see have clear view of the football game the other person you know was actually shorter and so they actually couldn't see anything so what that person needed was a step up. They literally needed a ladder so they can stand on and have the same equal view. Now, it was only that person who got the step up, not the person who was already tall because they already had that enabled Mm. privilege Mm. of being able to clear it. So I think that is a a good example of Mm. equity versus equality. That's Mm. a very good example. So off that, I'm going to move on to some very bizarre-sounding questions. But um, So, Shivati, today in the session that we moderated, which was – so much fun. Thank you for putting it together. But Thank um, you. we did a little thing that you and I came up with at some weird time of the night. Um, and we were texting each other about our rapid fire questions, like the really quick things that we'd ask the panelists. And I thought that we'd ask those questions of ourselves as Why well not? before crossing to our interview and um, talking and then having a, a quick chat following that interview as well. But just so we get to these questions. So the first one was about toilet paper. Well, it wasn't the first. It was somewhere in there. How many rolls of toilet paper have you got, Georgie? Uh, we've got 12. 12. And I'm not able to get more, it would seem. Yeah. Mm. 
in case somebody's listening to this in six months' time and thinks, like, what is the context there? <laughs> and I hope so in six months' context. time we're still not in a zone where toilet paper is under threat. Oh, we're not. But also, isn't no. it coronavirus and not gastrovirus? I don't understand <laughs> why we're why we're going crazy on toilet paper. And can I just say, we're, we're down to like three rolls in our household. I have no idea how I'm going to get access to toilet well, paper right but now. But also, can I just say this, and this might be too much information. I live in a house, there's, you know, I've got three children. Our youngest, and I don't think this is uncommon for three-year-olds, honestly, she uses half a roll every time she goes into the bathroom <laughs> because you she likes roll off whacking it. And, then it all, and I walk in and now I'm like, okay, 12 rolls is not enough for this family. Yeah, The youngest will get through that in... No, three yeah. days. So my doomsday prep that I did a little bit too early, um, embarrassingly early, <laughs> but I didn't think to get toilet paper. So I've got like five like huge boxes of wheat bix, and that's pretty much it because I was like wheat bix and water and a massive thing of tomato sauce. Mm. That was that was me thinking that would somehow get us through. So anyway, next to the uh, next question, your morning routine, Shivani. You love a morning routine. I do love a good morning routine. Though, Angela, you got me on the waking up uh, at a at what no, some people will no, call an, an no. ungodly hour. But uh, I wake up at four and uh, I get out of bed, feed the cat because he's the most important thing in the world, clearly. And uh, then I will meditate, have some wonderful warm apple cider vinegar, and then I will go downstairs and do some deep work. I'll do that for about an hour, an hour and a bit, and then I'll get myself to the gym. And when I'm back, then I can shower, get dressed and head off to work. Okay, I'm just going to collapse onto the couch right now because that is exhausting. It's yeah. actually <laughs> really energising. After a couple of weeks, at first, yeah. I think I averaged, I don't know, three coffees and three teas because I was so darn tired. It's taken me a good six weeks to get to this point. Okay. So it doesn't happen overnight, but it does happen. Okay, <laughs> okay. my morning routine is quite different to that. If um, if my husband is starting work later, it's my ideal to go for a walk. Um, so maybe like go for a walk from 6 to 6.30 or something like that. If he is leaving early for work, it's just a matter of I wake up at, you know, between 6 and 6.30, the kids come in, we get breakfast ready, I get everyone ready for school, get myself ready for work. Look, there's no... Um, there's nothing special happening mm, in yeah. my morning routine. I used to have good, strong morning routines. Um, they're not as great as they used to be. I think, as I've mentioned previously on this podcast, I do have issues sleeping. And when you have mm. issues sleeping, you do try to um, take the, make the most of your sleep as you can. And I tend to just get woken up by a child. So I don't yes. set, but I am usually up around 4am. And I do like to use that, that time to try and, as I said today, you know, you eat the frog, you try and tackle the most difficult thing, the thing that when you're exhausted later on because you've been having to make so many decisions throughout the day that you can try and make those big decisions early on in the morning. Mm. So, Angela, you asked the, the panel a incredible question at today's event that I want to ask back to you, mm-hmm. actually. Mm, is it the Trump one? It's, it's actually not. It's, no, it's, okay. it's one that I really cringe to tell people about too, so I need to hear yours. Uh, what is a TV show that you have binged on but don't want anyone to know about? Um, I think it was binged on and... I use the term loved, but don't want anyone to know about. Spill. Um, okay, so I'm going to say this, but I don't actually get to watch a huge amount of TV. So when I do, it has to be pretty special, right? So I have been enjoying a little bit of maths lately, and oh. I am so ashamed. And I sit there, and I'm like, I stream it. Um, I, or, you know, just whatever. Often I'm just sitting in my bed while I'm trying to like. You know, my kids are urging that they like me to be upstairs with them. So I'll go and like kind of retreat to my room, get in a little bit of 20 minutes. But I like to fast forward through the boring bits. And I am quite 
Because I'm horrified by some of the things that go on that show and I'm often like yelling at my phone screen because it's just so disturbing. But I have been binging it. And I, a little story, I watched it while I was in labour uh, with my baby last year. It was a great distraction. Well, it got you through. And look, mm. you're, you're not alone. I think you and half of Australia is watching maths mm. and uh, a good good quarter of it of them are not admitting it either. So I think you've done them a great favour. Yeah, well, I have a lot of I, problems with the show. Jo- often I like bring it up when George is in the office and you're like, I don't watch it, Angela. <laughs> yeah, but it's not because of any grand um, – it, it just it hasn't captured my imagination – but it's obviously captured the imagination of a lot of Australians. And I think it is because it's classic car crash television yeah, and you yeah. can't look away. The show that I have loved that I'm actually – it sort of pains me to say that I love it is a show called Unreal mm. and it's on Netflix. Um, actually, no, it's on Stan. Be right back. Going to go check it out right now. Yeah. It, look, it's basically – it's. The premise of it is that it's the filming of a reality TV show that's called Everlasting, but it's basically The Bachelor. And it is absolutely horrifying to watch. And if if even 5% of what they do on this show happens in actu- in the production of actual reality TV shows, I think that would explain maths. Well, it totally happens. I like think it happens. Yeah, it is so engineered stage. and it is so awful. And I watch it and I'm like, I can't believe I'm watching this, but I can't not watch it. Yeah. Mm. Okay, so f- uh, two more. Two what more? about you, Shivani? What's your oh, guilty? Wait, we didn't do yours, sorry, Shivani. Oh, my yeah. – uh, yeah, this is really embarrassing too. My guilty pleasure is Outlander with uh, Sam Hewen. He's – oh, I mean – is that not like, like – is that not embarrassing? Okay, should I give another one then? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, I've never actually watched it, but – Okay, yeah. so look, I have watched another really, really embarrassing one, uh, The Vampire Diaries. Okay, that's I've, I've watched yeah. the whole series and um, – <laughs> Look, the men are just incredibly beautiful and uh, I have just sat there for endless hours staring at the TV. Mm. But, you know, someone's got to do it, so I just took one for the team. Mm. Okay, so next question. This one got people talking today. Georgie, this mm. is going to come as a surprise to you. Yes. you know what it is. But would you, would you accept, accept, would you, uh, accept Donald Trump as your boss if it meant that he was no longer President of the United States? Yes. Okay. Any no question. Well, I think anything that You have to work with him for a while. Just yeah. Mm. Yeah. I think I could um, – I think that the greater good is that we have him out of a powerful position where he's making decisions that impact the rest of the world. Mm. I'm imagining that I'm employed um, <laughs> in one of his businesses – and oh, you're, I, you're the CEO of one of his businesses. Not the CEO. I'm <laughs> yeah. not, I think I think I'd probably be his secretary or something. I love how you're already controlling the situation. So I'll be employed in one of his businesses. Not all. I can control this. I don't have to see him every day. No. This is what and I'm I, I just right I just I feel like, from my understanding, he doesn't do very much work at all. So I feel like he'd be at the golf course a lot. And then I would just prefer him away from the control room. Mm. That's true. In in that position mm. of power. So yeah. that's yeah. I'd yeah. take that for the team. I would too. I would too. But the same thing. Uh, yeah. I'd be the C- and I'd. You know, You'd I'm be sure the CEO. He pays some of those CEOs quite well. Well, I so, think there'd be you know, strings attached. Yeah. You'd have to be willing to I'll sort just, of go. Otherwise, be yeah. sec- and just send him out to the golf course yeah. every day, so yeah. he can't be too close to any um, major strategic decisions. Just sticking with his phone, unlimited yeah, Twitter exactly. access, unlimited. Mm-hmm. That got a little bit silly, but we are going to go on to more uh, serious conversation now. 
There are so many things to say about Dr. Kikenya Nataya and her story about how she came to be visiting Australia. It's a story that's so impressive that Kikenya was featured in Melinda Gates's recent book, The Power of Lift. But really, it's a story of the power of education at a time when we really need to be talking about the number of girls internationally who are still not in school, let alone at university. Engaged at age five, Kikenya experienced female genital mutilation as a young teenager in preparation for marriage. Her life was set to follow the traditional path of ending school to become a wife and mother, but Kikenya had a very different dream. She negotiated with her father to return to school after undergoing FGM, and when she was accepted to college in the United States, she promised her community that she would use her education to help the village in exchange for their support. Kikenya went on to earn her PhD in education and returned to her community to fulfil her promise. She has now built two schools in Kenya, educated more than 550 girls, including 80 who are now at university. Three students from her schools are now in university in Australia, including Sharon, who you'll hear a little bit more from in this conversation. They are supported through the Women for Change program locally here, and they, those three students are on full scholarships from three different universities. Kikenya's TEDx video, Educate a Girl, Empower a Community, has been viewed almost 1.8 million times, and I really encourage you to go and watch that video to learn a little bit more about why it's so important that we keep up this conversation about educating girls. And now to our conversation. Dr. Kikenya, thank you so much for being with us on the Women's Agenda podcast. You're here in Australia talking about the number of girls that are still not in school internationally and I've heard figures go around that we are still looking at 130 million girls. Yes. That's what you use. Can, could you share, I mean, what kind of impact does that have on the lives of those girls, their families, the community? What is the real impact? Um, when girls don't go to school, uh, most of the time it's because they're married off when they're young, mm. um, at the age of 12, 13, 14. Um, and that means that their dreams are cut short. Uh, that means that they will get married into poverty. Um, they will have difficulties in giving uh, birth to children, children giving birth to children. Uh, and the circle is traumatizing. Um, it is, um, it's really, uh, we lose a lot uh, when we don't educate girls. Uh, I think I believe strongly that the one thing that can change the world is to educate the edu- education of girls. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And I mean, it changed your life as well. Absolutely. Could you tell us about that experience? Yeah. So I, I grew up in a small village in rural Kenya um, and I was expected to get married as a young girl. Actually was engaged when I was five years old. Um, but I went to school and uh, I dreamed of becoming a teacher and I really looked to pursue that. Um, went through female genital cutting and um, just, you know, experiences that were quite traumatizing in my life. But, um, I was able to get a scholarship, go, went to university uh, and that has changed my life. It has changed the life of my siblings and mm-hmm. my family. Um, and now with the work that I do uh, of empowering other girls. When you say that your education changed the lives of your siblings and family, how did how does that look? So I am the first of eight <laughs> in my family, uh, and everybody in my family 
my siblings have all gone to school. Mm-hmm. Um, they, uh, one of my sisters and I didn't avoid um, female genital cutting, but the rest avoided it. When I learned about it, I made sure that they didn't go through uh, the, the, the horrific experience. Um, um, my sisters they have an entrepreneur who is uh, doing business. I have a sister who is studying to be a doctor. I have one that is doing accounting uh, and social work. Um, my I've even influenced my brothers, mm. their teachers, their accountants, and so um, I think because I went to school, I was able to really change the story in my family. Um, the the community they they call my mother's home, this the home of the learned. <laughs> yeah, uh, the scholarship that you mentioned that you got, where did that opportunity come from? How did that come about? Um, I found someone in my community who had been helping Mel go to university in different parts of the world. Um, and I approached him to say, look, uh, I need a scholarship too. And he looked for a scholarship that was in the uh, U.S. So I found myself in the little village in <laughs> the U.S. called Park, Virginia, uh, where I really the whole world kind of opened up for me when I went to university for the first time. I had access to books. I had uh, in the community where I grew up, there are no libraries. There is no internet. Uh, the newspaper only belonged to the men and the radios, and the women didn't have any access to any information. So I was really kind of like my whole world was opened up because I was able to access information. I was able to read. I was able to um, just learn as much as I can. Mm. Um, and uh, I think the biggest challenge is that I realized that in my community women are abused, but it's actually a global issue. Um, as I said earlier, girls' education is not just my community where girls are married young. Mm. It's uh, globally, actually. Um, there's uh, this year alone, every year, about 2 million, uh, 12 million girls are married. Uh, that is 28 girls every minute. Mm. Um, mm. If you look at that, that's uh, those are not just figures. This is... Uh, lives being and um, and being put in very difficult situations and that's how the circle of poverty ends up uh, violations of women um, and it's just a difficult life for them mm. yes what was it like when you left um, Kenya to go and study in America what was that experience like well it was a huge culture shock mm. <laughs> I went from a community that didn't have running water, no electricity, no paved roads, no all that stuff, uh, to a community that had everything. So, uh, and even just including food, we had limited food at home. I was going to the cafeteria, it's like packed with food and all that. So it was quite a culture shock. But I, I think as I said earlier, what I found the being in a school, learning, access to information was critical to me. Mm. Yes. And what did you study? Where, so, so yes. Yeah, so I actually went to college, uh, wanting to study uh, banking because I thought I would have a lot of money. <laughs> 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 but I ended up doing international studies and uh, political science. I was drawn into this because of the human rights approach and really wanting to make the world a better place. And uh, so that's what I ended up doing. And mm. once you graduated, what? What did you do next? I mean, did you look for opportunities in the US or did you always have the idea that you would return to your home? 
So I was actually fortunate because I worked for um, the UN. I worked for an organization called uh, um, United Nations Population Fund, and I was the first uh, youth advisor. I uh, talked about, I was uh, going around the world talking about early marriages and why we should end female genital cutting, why we should empower young people. Um, but I think at some point I just said, well, I was just talking and nothing was changing in my community. So mm. I did go back to school, worked on my graduate work. But in the middle of that, I went back to my village to create a school for girls. Mm, okay. Yes. And, and so that's why you're in Australia now. You're talking about that school. In Australia, there's a charity here that raises money for, 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 the school, for scholarships here. Um, maybe you could talk us, how many students have you got at the school now? How many schools do you have? How many have graduated? <laughs> How's it all going? So I started uh, Kakenya Centre for Excellence, which is the f- my first school 10 years ago uh, with uh, 30 students. Um, those students are now in university. We have since educated over 500 girls uh, from fourth grade all the way to university and colleges. Uh, we've been very fortunate to work with uh, an organization here in Australia, the LBW Trust, but also there's a, a group of women who are called Women for Change, who are really at the forefront of helping me send our students to tertiary education. We yeah. have uh, over 80 girls that are going to university in Kenya, and then we have three girls in Australia who are going to university here. So it's yeah. been really an amazing journey because we don't just focus on um, primary school or secondary school. Mm. We focus holistically yeah. um, because if girls drop out of school, in mostly where I come from, we have about 17% transition to secondary school uh, and like less than 2% go to colleges and universities. So... We are wow. changing okay. that paradigm. Yeah, you're yes. changing that figure in a huge way. Yeah, so I have two schools now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And do you still teach in the schools at all, or how, how, do you, how does that work? I'm everywhere. I'm more focusing on fundraising now. Yeah. As I, you know, 500 students, I have to really be out um, to find well-wishers and people who can stand with me. I always say I have a global village uh, that is helping me uh, make a difference in my community. Mm. Yes. Okay, we do have one of your scholarship winners here as well. So, this uh, could, could we meet Sharon too? And so, Sharon, you're at UTS in Sydney. Um, so, having uh, one, and so the the um, Women for Change scholarships and the universities uh, helping out as well. I understand as well. So, Sharon, how long have you been in Australia for now? So, I've been here for almost a year now. Right. Okay. And what are you what are you studying? I'm studying medical science at UTS. And what has the what was the experience like? I mean, coming to Australia for the first time. I mean, we we heard about it from the the, the American perspective then. So yeah. So when I was told that I was one of the guys picked to study here, I was excited and then at the same time nervous because I didn't know how it would be like to study in a foreign country, and I, you know, I've never been interacting with the white people, I was just, you know, with Kenyans. Then suddenly I'm told that I was going to come to study here in Sydney. But it was actually easy when I came here because I think Australians are really friendly and they are always ready to help. And um, even my lecturers and, you know, um, and the ladies of Women for Change have been really supportive 
and that really made me made it easier for me to transition into my studies. Mm. Were you always wanting to do um, a science degree? What what made you choose medical science? Ah, so since I was a child, I normally say when I grow up, I want to be a doctor. And it's actually surprising for me because, you know, many people change their, you know, their dreams along mm. the way, but I never, like, changed it. And um, I always loved biology and all the science stories. So, um, and also looking back at my community, there are no, you know, adequate medical facilities. So um, that al- also inspired me to take a medical because mm-hmm. I want to, you know, participate in a healthcare facility back at home and, you know, make medication easier for people who cannot afford it. So, you know, and yeah. just provide all those nice and good facilities and make mm. it really easier for them. Yeah. Mm. That's amazing. Congratulations. Thank How you. many years have you got to go? Uh, so I have two years to go, but I'm looking to further my studies. So my ultimate goal to be a dentist. Yeah. Yeah. Great. That's amazing. That's amazing work, Dr. Kakenia. I mean, when even going back to the science piece of that, uh, do you intentionally make that a, a, a clear focus of the school? Um, one of the things that I do, I, I really strongly believe in um, nurturing all talents. Um, and so those who are good at sciences, I will definitely create those opportunity for them. But we're really looking at um, letting the girls uh, thrive at their best. Um, so we've been fortunate; uh, most of our students are attracted <laughs> to the sciences. But we do have teachers, we do have accountants, we do have um, all kind of varieties, uh, which is really uh, for the society to thrive. You need a balance of all. Yes. Mm. Yeah. So I've also read, um, just when I was looking up some different information on you, which there's a lot out there, <laughs> you were featured in Melinda Gates's book, so that's quite amazing. <laughs> um, so, but also about the role of fathers in education. What Could you talk to us about th- what you feel is the importance when it comes to the role of fathers in education? Um, I, we grew up, I mean, Sharon and I and the girls grew up in a society that is very patriarchal, but men are not really available for girls. So they are, the fathers are kept very distant. So we grow up fearing and being very far away from our fathers. Mm. Um, and just kind of like when I went to university and uh, I, for the first time I was seeing these big girls hugging their fathers and I'm thinking, what? Uh, and I really kind of like felt that the fathers play a key role and should play a key role in their bringing of their children. And so when I started going back to the village and working with the fathers, I had to work with them to um, start seeing the difference in the girls' lives, not just as, as wives, as, as uh, two will have children. And I wanted them to, to see their, their daughters the way they would see their sons, mm. as that, um, yes, they could be married, but that doesn't mean the end. They have talents that we can bring that up. So I have worked a lot with fathers, and I think the whole general, I believe strongly in um, not just, I think we have focused, especially in the women movement, about um, all the issues that are affecting women. We tend to create women 
you know, women things. But I think men need to play a big role in terms of creating spaces for, for women mm. to speak up. I am very, you know, when I at home, we'll have meetings and then the men will sit in chairs and women will sit on the floor. And I'm thinking that shouldn't be the right thing. So I always tend to move with women and bring women to the, <laughs> to the table. Yeah. Uh, so it is so important that the fathers uh, can play the key role in the upbringing of their daughters. And I've really focused on that because that changes the, the narrative. If a father values the daughter, mm. he's going to pay more respect to her and the community will pay respect to the daughter because the father pays respect to her. Mm. So that that's what we work. We believe very strongly in working with the fathers to support the girls mm. yes what's next for the schools what 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 are you, what's your future ambition <laughs> to happen there <laughs> right now we are in the middle of really creating our, our it's been 10 years uh we've really made significant uh progress we have uh starting to change the mindset of uh the communities all our girls that have gone through our schools have not gone through female genital cutting, which is a major mm. shift in the society. Uh, girls are now in college. They're being being accepted. And that mind shift, I think we've done something. So we are putting our, uh, our curriculum and model uh, so that we can be able to share with not just the Kenyan government, but also with rural communities, there are so many issues. The issues of FGM is not just a, a Kenyan issue. It's a global issue. Um, you know, Gender-based violence is not a Kenyan issue. It's a global mm. issue. Mm. And, and I think that we need to learn how we have been able to work in the local community to change the narrative and how can we share that there. So uh, I think our focus right now is really, uh, one, is to create that model to share with the world. Uh, you know, 130 million girls should not be out of school to change that number and I think we have something to share on that so mm. yeah thank you so much for joining us this has been absolutely fascinating to learn your experiences and the work that you're doing as well thank, thank you. you very much for giving me the voice to share our work and uh congratulations uh happy international women's day coming up mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh enjoy this is wonderful thank you thank you thank you yeah. so much okay so that was a pretty impressive conversation Georgie, what were some of the key things that you took away from that one? I think it's it's hard to go past how powerful her story is in terms of giving perspective. And and it's the same for Sharon, you know, who's come out from Kenya and is is doing medical science here at UTS. It is, you know, one of the things here in Australia that virtually every woman and girl is has access to is education. It's just something that we have sorted here, absolutely. And I think what Dr Kenya said about education is the thing that changes lives, education of girls, because if you educate girls, it means that you will, they can avoid things like early, you know, childhood marriage. They can avoid um, female genital mutilation procedures. They can have agency over their lives and that isn't possible if they don't if you know if they're I mean she said she was in an arranged marriage she was engaged from when she was five Mm, mm. um and I think that it is quite incredible to just hear even just her own story about you know growing up in a small village and then getting the scholarship and going to America and you know doing a university degree but then the impact that that's had on her whole family and you Mm. think about the multiplier effect of that um it's amazingly powerful to consider. Mm. Yeah, 
absolutely. So we've got Shivani back with us now. Um, Shivani, you didn't get to hear that conversation, but um, it was it was definitely something that um, you will see our notes, you'll see the story written up, and it just really, I think, like you said, it just puts so much in perspective when we when when we're here sitting about talking about International Women's Day, mm. and that's one of the things like that gave us the opportunity to have that conversation. International mm. Women's Day mm. was the catalyst that um, that she's here in Australia. Do it, speaking to a number of different universities about the scholarship program and it meant that we got to, to take the time to, to learn a little bit more. So mm. you can see the, the benefits there. Yes. So we might, uh, just to wrap up, we like to wrap up on uh, what's on our mind this week or what's on our minds this week. Um, Georgie, I'll cross to you first of all. Um, oh, you've sort of caught me on the hop here because... I suppose I suppose the thing I do think about this week is is the sort of making sense of the different threads that make up gender mm-hmm. equality. So I think you know a couple of years ago I was very fortunate to go to Sweden. Um, the Swedish government put on an event on you know it was on gender equality, and they had delegates from around the world that were there. And one of the things that I found my mind just kept turning to was how do we make sense of the fact that in some parts of the world, you know, we know from what Dr. Kenya was saying, there are, there's over 100 million girls who aren't educated every single year. And we know what the consequences of that are. And then you also say, okay, but in a country like Australia, that's not a barrier so much to inequality, but we still have inequality here. And I think that's one of the things that I am thinking about this week, and International Women's Day does always make me think that, is is how to tackle any bit of inequality. And it doesn't have to be a case of just because we have education sorted here, therefore gender inequality isn't an issue we need to discuss. We do. But at the same time, the inequality that girls face when they're not educated is the consequences are more grave mm-hmm. than, than the inequality we face here. But that doesn't make the inequality here palatable. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, coming to grips with those sorts of that sort of tussle in my head about who, about how you um, not rank inequality, but how you consider it all. Mm, yeah, yeah. Shivani, what's on on your mind? Yes, I've got money on my mind. Oh, yeah, yeah and uh, a little different to yours, George. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, no. It is it is in the theme of of International Women's Day and and money being on my mind because you know, Georgie, we just talked about it and you know the work for free day. And I, I think it's it's ludicrous that we expect so much free work from women. But I think it's so important that more and more women normalise talking about money, how much they're making and what it is that they're doing with the money that they're making and how they could be making more. I think it's the very silence of us not talking about money that actually breeds injustice and it breeds the further and further and further uh, gender pay gap that we've currently got. In fact, the, you know, research actually proves that when there's pay transparency and employers talk about pay and people talk about pay, the gender pay gap actually closes out right, right through. Um, so I, I think that I would love to encourage as many women as possible to just talk about money. Let's break the taboo via action and let's just normalise things and, and talk about money as freely and openly as we can because I think that would be a great way for us to increase our confidence so that not only are we talking about it with our 
our friends, our partners, our peers, but then also with our leaders as well so that we're being super confident around making sure we're putting our best foot forward and asking for the kind of salary that we so deserve. Mm. So I'm going to build on yours and say that that will also be on my mind and it is already on my mind, but we are actually, we happen to be publishing a piece about pay transparency and the power of pay transparency and it's sitting uh, ready to go. It's been edited, it's by a new writer and so it will be up by the time we uh, put this podcast out. And I think I'd like to add that about women talking about money, but if men can talk about money as well, because we need to hear what men are earning. Mm. And that's this piece looks at an anecdote of um, of a man sitting in his organisation and thinking, I'm going to email uh, the staff here and let people know what I'm earning. Um, he came up with the idea. It's you know, it's I don't know if he actually went through with it, but that was the whole thing. He's like, if if people knew what I'm earning, wouldn't that be a start towards pay transparency? And that's the, it's got to be men and women talking mm. about it. Otherwise, we'll just be comparing ourselves among women when we really need to be comparing ourselves among men to the proper benchmark that mm. it should be. Yeah, mm. good point. All right, well, that's the podcast for this week. We got to do it in person and I really hope that we get to do it in person a lot more. So thank you, Shivani, and thank you, Georgie. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you both. <laughs>